All right, so for those of you who may be, uh, may be new with us this morning, we have a series that we've been going through. We've been going through the book of Genesis here, um, and we're calling it uh, Getting to Know God, which I obviously haven't made a slide for yet because we're still using the Genesis 1-1 slide here, um, but someday I'll make a slide for that, but we're calling it Getting to Know God, and we've talked about how... One of the ways that you can really get to know someone is simply by seeing how they treat other people. So we've been looking at how does God treat people from the very beginning, starting with Adam and Eve, going on to Noah, Cain and Abel, uh, before that. Um, And now we're going to look at the incident of the Tower of Babel, okay? We've got a whole group of people there. We're going to ask, how is God treating these people? Now, you guys know that one of the analogies that you can use for our relationship to God is as a father to his children, right? And so when we look at our relationship with our parents, there's a lot of parallels that we can see to how our relationship looks with God. And so I'm going to ask this question to start off. What is something that you really have wanted and you knew that the only way you were going to get it is if your parents were going to get it for you? Anything out there comes to mind when I say that? You really wanted something, the only way you're going to get it is if your parents help you out in some way. What comes to mind? Trevor, you got something on your mind, right? Lamborghini. Lamborghini, right? Yeah. Got to reach, have dad and mom reaching deep into those pockets and pay for that Lamborghini, okay? What do you guys think? Anything you really wanted? Yeah. A vacation. A vacation, okay. <laughs> Tommy, you're not taking vacations by yourself? <laughs> Calling up the travel agent? No? Okay. Yeah? Yeah? Probably anything. Anything. You go to the ATM, named mom, and you get the money. Right. Yeah. College. College. Yep. Drew? A dog. A dog. How's that coming, by the way? It's... Get, getting closer? No. No. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. In our first base. What? Our first base. Oh yeah, getting a base. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, I was on the same wavelength as Meg, Maggie, so I was trying to wrap my mind around that one. <laughs> got it. <laughs> Aiden, you got one for us? Lunch. Specifically, orange chicken from Panda Express. Good. Yeah. Good. Now, here's the question. When we want those things from our parents, how do we go about getting them? You're really nice. Okay. So we start thinking, what would appease the gods, the parents, gods, right? And make them happy with me so that I can get what I want, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. Is that a new tie, Dad? Man, you're looking sharp today. Right? <laughs> yes. Never ask your mom. Don't, yes. You choose the right parent, right? That is key. You have to figure out which one you're going to go with. Drew. Okay, so you've got to prove yourself maybe, right? You have to prove that you are worthy of this gift that they are going to bestow upon you. Okay. So these are all really good responses. Now the thing is, we can start treating God this way. Okay? We have to be careful because, in a sense, we're kind of trying to manipulate our parents a little bit, aren't we? Like, we know our parents have needs, 
We know that our parents have desires. And we know that if we can meet those needs and those desires, like, like they need us to do our chores or they desire us to be respectful of them. And if we can meet these needs and meet these desires, we might be able to take the will of our parents and bend it in our direction so that we get what we want, right? Now, the Tower of Babel is all about that. That's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So open in your um, Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a whole stack of them right over here, so feel free to get up, grab one, um, so that you can have one to look through here. You need one, Alan? Ryan, grab two. Grab one, bring one up here. All right, so Genesis chapter 10. Now, how many of you, you're reading through Genesis, and there's some parts that you're like, good story, pretty exciting. And then you get to some parts, and you're like, no idea what's going on, pretty boring. All right, so we're going to start with one of those parts, no idea what's going on, may at first seem boring. It starts off like this. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So let, let me give you a little bit of the structure here. If you look at that first paragraph, that's all talking about the sons of Japheth. If you look at the next paragraph, verses 6 all the way through verse 20, those are the sons of Ham. And if you look at 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, those are the sons of Shem. Okay? So three big sections. We're giving the names of different people. And if you just read through it, you get to like, first of all, Verse 2, sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, that's a good one, Rephath, and Togermah. Okay, just, what are these? It's like the, this is the Bible baby name book, you know, we're looking for names for the babies, or what, what, how do we apply this? Well, one of the things that I want you guys to notice, first of all, is that as we look at this chapter, you'll notice that there's parts of it where it just gives the name, Magog. We don't know anything about that guy except his name, okay? But we get to some people, and the author stops on that person and talks a little bit. Now, we should notice that as we're reading the Bible, because the author says, oh, by the way, you should know a little something about this guy. So the first person we get to that we should know something about, after we get through the sons of Japheth, is we get to the sons of Ham, okay, verse 6, and we have Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And Canaan, huh, that should ring a bell. Why does that ring a bell? We know our Bibles. The land of Canaan is where modern-day Israel is. That's where the Israelites were headed, okay? And we keep reading. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabdaka. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. So far, we're just going name, name, name. And then we get to Nimrod. Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Stop right there. It's kind of interesting, right? So we get a little more information on Nimrod. Why? What's the big deal? Well, it says the beginning of his kingdom was where? Babel. Where are we headed? We're about to get to the story of the Tower of... Babel, okay? So Nimrod's kind of important. Nimrod's name means, uh, I wrote it down here, it just slipped my mind. 
Nimrod's name means we shall rebel. We shall rebel. Okay? So all of a sudden, we're getting some ideas as to what Babel is going to be all about. Nimrod, potentially the leader of the people at the time, we shall rebel. Okay? If we keep reading throughout this, and we get down to verse 15, we see Canaan. And Canaan, let's read these names that Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn on Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of Canaan dispersed, blah, blah, blah. Huh. Some of these names should ring a bell because as we read, the people of Canaan were the enemies of the people of Israel, right? So put yourself in Moses' shoes with all the Israelites. What's Moses doing here? He's explaining where all these people groups came from, okay? And then we get to Shem at the end, verse 21. Shem is the oldest son, and it says, the father of all the children of Eber. Now what he's done is he's taken Eber, who actually comes a couple generations later, and he's pulled him right up to the very beginning to say, by the way, this is where Eber comes from. Now Eber, in Hebrew, is actually the beginning of the word Hebrew, these are the Israelites. These are where the Hebrews are going to come from. So this is our group. This is, this is you know, people who are reading this. He's starting off by saying, and this is where we came from. Okay? And then if you get to 25, it says, To Eber were born the two sons, and that one was named Peleg. For in his days, the earth was divided. In his days, the earth was divided. That's kind of weird. What are we talking about? Well, a lot of people think we're just talking about the Tower of Babel. So if you want to know when did the Tower of Babel happen, it was in the days of Peleg. Okay? So anyways, you might be thinking, what's the point? Well, some people who have a lot of time on their hands and really love studying the Bible went through this chapter and counted all the names. And guess what they came up with? Seventy. Seventy names. Now, the reason that's interesting is because in the Bible, the number of perfection is seven. Okay? So to have ten groups of seven or seventy groups what we have here is we have what they call the table of nations. This is the explanation of where all the nations came from in the known world at their time. Okay? Now that's going to be kind of a weird piece of information for us to know until we get to the very end of our message and you're going to see that that's actually pretty important. So jump down now to chapter 11. Okay? In chapter 11, well first of all, look at 10 verse 5. 10 verse 5 says, From these... The coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language. Jump to 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language. Hmm, problem, right? Well, we should know that the Bible does this pretty often. Genesis does this often, where he explains, or Moses in Genesis, explains a bunch of stuff, and then he tells a story that actually came before all that stuff he just said. So for example... He explains all of creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? And on Je Genesis chapter 2, he ends by saying, and God rested, and it was good, and it was all done, and everything's done. And then he goes back to Genesis 3, where he goes back to day number 6, right? Oh, and by the way, let me talk a little bit more about when he created man and woman. Okay, so he does this, where he explains stuff, and then he says, let me tell you something really important that happened in this time period. So what he's doing is, yes, all the people are going to spread everywhere with different languages, but now let me tell you how that happened. How did they go from Noah coming out of the ark and a bunch of people who were all the same family to a bunch of languages spread all over the world? So that's what's happening here. Okay, so he says, 
They have one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they made to one another, said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we're going to begin by looking at this passage by saying we've got a really big problem. A really big problem. Starting with a really big tower, okay? So they say, come, let's all get together and build a huge tower. Is there anything inherently sinful in building a huge tower? No, there's not, right? How many of you guys seen the tower in Dubai? You guys seen images of that, the tallest you know, building on the face of the earth right now? All right, pretty impressive, pretty amazing. And, and the fact that they built that was not a sin in itself. This is not saying don't build tall towers just because God doesn't like it. Okay? So we have to say, what's the problem? What's the big problem here? What have they done that's wrong? Because as we read, we're going to see that God says in the next verse, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, blah, 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 and he ends up stopping them and spreading them out all over the whole earth. So what's the big problem? Well, first, we have to say, what kind of a tower were they building? And when we look back in Jesus, not Jesus' day, thousands of years before Jesus, when we look back in Moses' day, back in this day, this description of a tower that has its head in the heavens is used to describe something called a ziggurat. Okay? Now, I was supposed to put a picture on this slide, and I just remembered about half a second ago that I didn't. Okay? If you have the ESV study Bible... Anybody have an ESV Bible that's got the picture in there? I know that mine had a picture of a ziggurat right on this page. It's not on this, like, chapter 11. It's probably not there. No? Okay. All right, it's okay. Um, how many of you, let me give you the closest thing I can think of to a ziggurat. How many of you know, down in Peru, where they've got these Incan temples, or Mexico has them too, I think, and it's just like this, looks like a pyramid just with a staircase going straight up to the very tippy top of it. That's basically what we're talking about, okay? Looks like a pyramid with a staircase going up the top of it, but it's not a pyramid. What were the pyramids used for? To bury people, right? Pyramids were hollow. It was a burial place for the kings. This is not a burial place, okay? A ziggurat was something completely different. What a ziggurat was, was it was a stairway, not up, but it was a stairway down. It was a way that the people made it accessible for the gods to come down and visit them. It was not a temple, okay? They actually did have a temple, and the temple would have been at the bottom of the staircase of the ziggurat. And so the idea was, we are making it easy for God to come down to us and meet our needs and come into his temple where we can worship him and he can bless us. And they would, at the top of the ziggurat, they would have food and they would have a bed so that the God could refresh himself on the way down, take a nap if he wanted to, okay? And so it's a way for God to come down to them. Now we're going to realize in just a minute why that's a problem, okay? But so they build a big tower, that's what it is. And then they say, we want to make a name for ourselves. What does that sound like to you? What type of an attitude do they have? Okay, there's some pride in there, okay? They want to make a name for themselves. They want to do something great. 
They want to leave behind a legacy. Okay, and what we see in this passage is in everything that this group of people says, do they ever say the word God or Lord or anything like that? No. Now, it would be wrong for us to think they just want to say, we are the greatest and look how big our tower is. Because the whole purpose of the tower is to bring God down to them. So it's not like they are atheists. It's not like they're just completely throwing God out the window. But they are pridefully building this tower so that they can bring God down to themselves. And why are they doing it? So that they won't be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Now, if you've read Genesis, we've heard in chapter 1 and chapter 3 and chapter 9 that God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay? So this idea of, hey, let's all get together and build a city and a great tower so that we don't have to fill the earth, well, that should sound like that is going against maybe what God intended for them, right? So what's the big problem? What's the main offense that we see here? Well, the way I see it, the main offense is that, first of all, God, in their view, has needs. God needs a stepping stone to make it a little bit easier for him to come down from heaven and visit us. And he might need a drink, and he might need some bread, and he might need to take a nap on the way down. So God has needs. And notice, does this line up with the rest of Genesis? I mean, think back to chapters 1, 2, and 3. God needs nothing, right? God makes everything. He makes it perfect. He makes it good. He gives humans all that they need because they're the ones who have needs. And yet the humans rebel. They decide that they know better than what God knows. I know what I need, and I need to know good and evil just like God does, okay? They're determined to be like God. And now in this passage, we see they're determined to make God like them. We are going to start seeing God as a human. God has needs just like we do. And when we study the beliefs of the ancient people around these Israelites, we see that they all saw the gods this way. All of them had idols and gods, and the way that they interacted with these gods was they had to, first of all, they had to make it. They had to make the statue that represented the god. And then they had to pamper it and cater to it just like you would to your parents when you really wanted something. They had to make sure that they were bringing it the food and giving it the worship, which turned kind of gross after a while, turning into child sacrifice and things like this. But it was all about keeping the gods happy. There was a ritual of the pagan gods in the Philistines where they would have to wash the god's mouth and wash the god's hands in order to get it to speak and do what you wanted it to do. Now, they're just washing a statue at that point, but it was symbolic of what was needed to be done in order to get the gods to do what they wanted them to do. So what's so bad about that? What's so bad about saying, well, yeah, we're just making it a little bit easier for God to come down to us. What's, what's wrong with that? Well, first of all, that's not who God is. God doesn't have needs. God doesn't need you. And he doesn't need you to do anything in order to help him or serve him. And if he does have needs, and you meet those needs, the problem with that is thinking, well, maybe I can meet God's needs, and if I do that, he'll give me what I want. And all of a sudden, God becomes our mom or our dad that we're just trying to manipulate in order to get what we really want. And if we look inside the heart of humans, it gets pretty scary to think, if we can manipulate God to give us what we want, well, now... 
we live in a very scary world because what we want is not what God wants most of the time. Okay? So the people saw the gods as if they were like really grumpy genies. Okay? And if you did everything just right, if you gave them exactly what they wished, they would do what you wanted them to do, but if you messed up, they just might explode. Okay, one of the other illustrations I heard was, it's like puppets filled with nitroglycerin, which is a very explosive compound, okay? And you're trying to get the puppet to move and say, yes, blessing here, I'll give you this, I'll give you this. But if you do anything to really bother them, you, they just might wipe you off the face of the earth, okay? And that's how they viewed the gods back in this day, and that's how the people are starting to view God, Yahweh, the one who created them. So if I was going to sum it up, we would say this. <coughs> The big problem of the Tower of Babel is that they have a twisted view of God that suggests we can manipulate God to get him to do what we want. And what do they want him to do? They want him to help make their name great, to make them a legacy for the people who are to come after them. Now, it's really comforting to know that we don't do this in our day and age, right? We're not building any towers in our backyards. You know, the last time you did, you stopped at about, you know, this high and gave up. We don't do that anymore. We don't try to do this. Or do we? We do, don't we, right? So let's think about it for a minute. How do we do this? Well, let's think about negotiating prayers. We say to God, God, I promise I'll never ask for anything ever again if you'll just give me this, right? Or you just do this for me, right? Or you say, God, I promise I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to go to church. I'm going to pray every day until you just give me this. Please, God, just do what I want you to do. Or we might think that if we give to our church, then so long as I'm giving to God, I'm giving back to him, he owes me a little bit, doesn't he? And at some point, he's going to give back when I need it. Or perhaps we think if we serve God enough, if we're on the worship team, if we're in our school's prayer club, if we go to the FCA meetings, if we lead a Bible study, we can look back to God and say, well, look at all I'm doing for you. Where's the kickback, right? I should get a little bit in response for all that I've given to you. Or have you ever heard of this idea of claiming promises? Have you ever, have you ever heard of this? This is prominent in some denominations, but this idea that there are promises in the Bible and all we need to do is claim them and believe them and then we will get what we want from these promises. Now, if you haven't encountered it, it's probably because you've gone to Grace Church for a while and I, thankfully we don't do this very much because I don't think it's very right-headed. So I'm going to read to you something from a blog that I read um, to give you an idea of what it sounds like so that you can be aware of this when you come across it. Most recently, I come across it on my Facebook page. You know, I have friends who believe this, and you get a little meme, and it says, today I'm claiming the promise that blah, 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 and I believe it's going to be true, and so it's going to be true. So let me read this to you. It says, when you trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, you inherited a wealth of divine promises. By believing and claiming these scriptural promises, you can live the abundant, victorious life that Jesus died for you to have. The Lord has given his children promises of provision, healing, wisdom, strength, peace, joy, and everything we need to fulfill our God-given purpose and potential on this earth. But these heavenly resources are not automatic. We have to lay hold of them by faith. 
The Bible says, do not become sluggish, but imitate those through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews 6.12. And Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. John 15.7. And this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. 1 John 5.14-15. to 15. So let me give you some practical examples of how you can begin to claim God's promises for your needs. Suppose you need healing in your body. You can ask the Lord to lead you to some promises in his word that cover your need. You discover Jeremiah 30, 17, which says, I will restore you to health and heal your wounds. Then you begin praying, Lord, I ask that you fulfill your promise by restoring me to health and healing my wounds. If your healing is delayed, you can reaffirm your belief that God will act on your behalf by confessing repeatedly, the Lord is restoring me to health and he's healing my wounds. And you can really delight the heart of God by beginning to thank him in advance for fulfilling his promise to you by saying, Lord, thank you for restoring my health and healing my wounds. Notice how your faith increases and your hope abounds as you focus on the promise instead of your circumstances. Over the years, I have seen my percentage of answered prayers increase dramatically simply because I have decided to make my prayers promise-centered instead of problem-centered. What do you guys think when you hear all that? Is there a disconnect anywhere? Does it sound pretty good? Let's go ahead and start doing that. It's me-centered. Okay, so first of all, the focus is I want to get this from God, right? I want healing. And you can use this to apply, I want money. I want the new car. I want to marry Justin Bieber. Whatever it is, I want this. I, nobody, nobody wants that. I know, okay. <laughs> yes? It makes it sound like you're not, that you're the one that's in control of God, that you, you're just using God. And then when you're done... So like that God's not the one in control of what he gives you, that all you have to do is just do something. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's like a gumball machine, and so long as you put the right quarter in the gumball machine, you get what you want to come out of it, right? Now, there's all sorts of problems with this. First of all, I want to say there are promises in the Bible that we should claim. For example, we should claim the promise that says, God will save all who call on the name of the Lord. You should claim that. If I have called on the name of the Lord, saying, I am a sinner and I need you to save me, we should say, God is going to save me because he has promised to do so. But we have to be really careful because we have to start saying, well, these promises, like for example, some of the ones that are quoted here, they weren't intended for us. They were intended for the people that it was being written to. They were specific to a certain time, a certain situation, and we need to understand them properly before we go out there and we just have to start claiming them. Now, the idea of claiming something and making it, it'll just come true, means that so long as I go through the song and dance that I need to go through, then I can get whatever it is I want. But God isn't all about giving us what we want. God is about giving us what we need. And anytime we seek a special formula or a combination of words or certain things that we're going to do to please God so that he'll give us what we want, then we're falling into the exact same sin that the people in Babel were falling into of trying to manipulate God and bring him down to do what it is that we want to do. So now let's ask, what's the solution? 
we see in this passage there's a really gracious solution. And if you look at verse 5, let's read to the end of the passage here. So 11 verse 5. Get those Bibles back open if we've closed them. Okay. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all, all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now, will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from the, there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the people and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Notice what God does. God sees what they're doing. He observes they're doing this because they all have one language. And the result is this, that they're trying to manipulate me and bring me down to do whatever they want. And so, this is, and then he said, this is only the beginning. Now, what does that mean? Is God threatened by this? Like, oh, they're coming up to get me and they're almost here. Like, Jack and the Beanstalk, they're going to come rob my castle. I better knock it down. No, that's not what's happening. God's saying, if they have done this by working together and come up with this completely wicked and wrong view of me and how I work, well, it's only the beginning. And unless I stop it, they are headed in a really bad direction. Okay? And so that's what God does. God says, I'm going to stop it. God's concerned. Notice, God's still concerned about his creation. Even after all the junk they've done from Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve to Noah, you know, starting over, going right back to wickedness, rebellion. Okay, he's still concerned. He's still watching them. And in his grace, he says, I'm going to stop this and I'm going to disperse them so that they don't keep going in this direction. Not because they're going to hurt him, but because of what's going to happen to themselves if they continue. So how does this response of God help us to get to know him? That's the question we want to keep asking. How does this show us who God is? And we're going to get to know God. What we see is that God is still watching. First of all, he's still concerned. Even after everything, he's not given up on them. He doesn't just walk away and say, you know, to hell with you. Literally. You're all going to be going to hell soon and I'm not going to stop you. You're on your way, just keep on going. No, what God does is when they build a giant staircase for the wrong reason, what does he do? He uses it. It says God came down to them. All right, you built a staircase. Here I come. He comes down, but he doesn't use it to bless them like they want, but he uses it to stop them from their bad theology. And so we see that the God of the Old Testament is a caring, concerned, gracious God who's all about restoring his creation, his people, back to a right relationship with him. And so we have to ask ourselves now, what's the solution? If this is the problem, what is the solution? Well, if humans have the problem of making God in their own image, of seeing him as being just like us, someone we can manipulate to make him do whatever we want, the problem of a twisted and wrong view of God must be met by a right view of God. And when we look at Genesis, we see that's exactly what God is doing here. If you look in your Bible, you see after chapter 11, verse 9, we talked about Shem before it. We get right back to Shem afterwards. Well, why are we talking about Shem again? I don't know. goes through all these guys and who they lived. And we get to the very bottom of 26. Terah had lived 70 years. He fathered Abram. Huh. We got to Abram. And it talks a little bit about Abram. And we get to 12, verse 1. And it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
So you notice that we've got this problem of everyone's, you know, making God in their own image. They've got a false view of who God is. And what's the very next step God takes? He says, let me show you who I am. And I'm going to start by going to Abram. Abram starts a relationship with him. That's what we're going to learn about next week. Starts this relationship in order to show, let me show you who God really is. This is not who he is. I'm not just like all the other gods or the people here. I'm very, very different. And if we read our Bibles, we can keep seeing who our God is. Not just in Abram's example, but if you just keep reading, for example, a great passage would be Exodus 34. I'll read it for you. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, the third and fourth generations. God is in the business, in his Bible, of showing us who he really is so that we don't do this, so that we don't keep trying to make God in our own image. If you read Psalm 50, we read, God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, God is saying, they thought that I needed something from them, and they were completely wrong. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? In other words, God's saying, I have no needs that you can meet. Our God doesn't need us. That's what we see when we read the Bible. But what our God does want is he wants to meet our needs. He knows that the needy one in this equation is us. We need help. But what we think we need and what he knows we need oftentimes aren't the same. That's why when we pray, God, heal me, he might not do it. And when we say, God, give me an A on my math test, he might not do it. Or when we pray, God, please get me into Stanford, he might not do it. Or if we pray, God, please make the person I have a crush on have fall in in love with me too, he might not do it. Okay, or he might pray, God, please get me that new car, he might not do it, or that higher paying job, and he might not do it. Or please get me that lead part in the musical, or please get me on that best sports team. He may not do any of those things because God knows your needs better than you do. And because God knows your needs better than you do, he's going to do what's best for you and he's not going to listen to you when you try to manipulate him in order to do what you want. So what has God done to reveal himself to us most clearly? Well, God has most clearly revealed himself to us in Jesus, right? That's where we really see who God is. Now take your Bibles and flip back to Acts chapter 2. Now some churches, they follow the uh, calendar of the ancient church a little bit more. If you're following the ancient church calendar, today is Pentecost Sunday. Okay, it's the day when they remember that the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples, and they all spoke in different languages and was revealed to all the people, right? Now, Pentecost Sunday is actually incredibly applicable to the Tower of Babel. The reason is, first of all, did I get these up here? Gracious solution. God stops the people from continuing in this rebellious direction, and God reveals his true character and true nature to us. Look at me with chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, 
They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues of fire, as a fire, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what was the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel was where they all spoke the same language. They sinned, and so God gave them all different languages so they would be dispersed, right? What's happening at Pentecost? Well, just a second. Let's keep reading here. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation. If we keep going on to verse 8, it says, or 9, there's Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Kedveshua, blah, blah, blah. Chapter 10 of Genesis was telling us where all the nations came from, right? And back here we're seeing all the nations are gathered together. And what happens? All the nations start to hear something in their own language. And what is it that they hear? They hear God's self-revelation of who he is in Jesus Christ. As Peter gets up and preaches the gospel that God is most revealed in a Jesus who came to die for their sin, rose again, and lead them in the way of salvation. And what happens at the end of the day of Pentecost is hundreds and thousands of people are saved. Okay? And so Pentecost, Jesus' revealing of himself through the Holy Spirit, through Pentecost, is the undoing of the Tower of Babel. It's this moment when God says, you thought you could get to me, you thought you knew who I was, and you were wrong, so I dispersed you over the whole earth. But now let me tell you who I really am, and I'm going to do it in a way that all of you can hear me in your different languages and bring you all back together so that you can be one nation again under Jesus Christ, under the true King. So to conclude, to review, the problem both then and now is that we twist the view of God that we should have. And we see him as a being that has needs and that if we can meet those needs, then he'll do what we want for our own benefit. That's the sin problem in our hearts that we need to deal with. And the solution to that problem is to get to know God for who he really is. That he's a God who doesn't have needs, that he's a God who knows that we have needs, and thus he has graciously sent Jesus to meet our needs. And it's only in Jesus that we can really worship God for who he truly is and really be in that relationship that from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 was broken and is only restored in Jesus Christ. That's our message for today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God of the Old Testament and the New. The God who does not give up on his people, though we were wicked, though we rebel, though we try to grasp you for our own good, that you refuse that feeble grasping at you to benefit ourselves because you have so much better things in store for us. And so God, I pray that you will protect us against a wrong view of you, against wrong theology that tries to manipulate you, and that we would submit ourselves to you and accept who you've revealed yourself to be in Jesus Christ and know that it's in Jesus that we can genuinely know the God of both the Old Testament and the New Testament who loves us so much that he gives himself for us so that we can worship him and be in right relationship with him. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, have a great week. See you Wednesday, Senior Celebration.
Sprite. Two. Okay. Uh, or it's not two. Well, I was thinking it's probably easier if we just pick you guys pick you up because we're headed up to their house, so we'll just go right past you. Oh, we're going to your house? Yeah. The oh. swing set's at their house, yeah. so we're going up there to get it and then bringing it back to my house. And well, first we're emptying the tree because someone yeah. cut down a tree.